Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And we have a guest we've wanted to have on for a long time. Uh, he's, he's had cameo appearances. Yes. This is his first. This is his first solo. Dedicated episode. Solo project on the podcast. <laughs> well, with that, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'm so honored. Um, I am Michael Zalta, and I am a queer Arab, Syrian-American, Jewish, playwright, researcher, writer, figuring it all out and you're based in new york are you still in new are you in new york right now actually i grew up born and raised in brooklyn and i am currently staying in los angeles for a few months oh, oh what was oh, the weather weather what's up, with, what's up with that how did that happen what is up with that i don't know i like right after like in like the mid-march when everything started shutting down i immediately retreated to my family's house in south brooklyn and i spent too many months there <laughs> where i just felt really stunted in terms of my thinking and growth i was like am i really going to spend a bunch of money to you know live like 30 minutes away from this house in the cold in a really small apartment, because that's all I probably could afford. I said, maybe I should just go west. Yeah. <laughs> space yeah. and get, get to like work and be outdoors, so. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And not too bad. Like if you're yeah. gonna mostly be doing things online, I assume you might as well be somewhere warm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, my survival job is work from home right now, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I think, if anything, that's what this pandemic has led to. I think a lot of people have just, like, people who work at home now, they're just like, well, okay, where do I want to spend my time? And, like, where where do I want to be bored at the most? Like, would I rather be bored in, like, a small apartment in New York or I could, like, go somewhere else? So it's it's been interesting to hear, like, when people are able to make that decision, like, just based on that versus, like, the practical work stuff it's interesting to totally yeah. yeah i mean i don't like to like wave around a basket of all the silver linings because i feel like oh everybody fuck that yeah like, yeah oh, fuck that. God, this, that this that basically i totally get yeah it. <laughs> yeah but at the same time it's like yeah this is a kind of like daring experiment that i probably wouldn't have done if i wasn't afforded some more time to reflect some more time to just like be a little bit more moving around especially like yeah at this point in my life i feel like as an early 20 year old something trying to like get feet off the ground it's not so it doesn't feel so enabling to like take some sort of like risks and yeah. it just gave you a little it gave me a little more space to just i don't know yeah lame stake my own life and joy <laughs> so now that you're far away from brooklyn let's talk about brooklyn um i guess uh so right before we started recording uh we were talking about michael's an interview that michael did um, with David Ashmi, who we previously had on the podcast, and you were saying, um, David was saying that Isaac Mizrahi's memoir was kind of like a 10-year previous version of his life, and you were feeling like David's thing was like a 10-year preview of your life. It's a really interesting Syrian-Jewish queer genealogy, starting with Isaac Mizrahi, who I guess is like 15, 10 to 15 years, um, David Ajmi senior, who was like one of the queers who left and made something of himself. And then David Ajmi, I guess, was the next. And I'm not- You're in line. Yeah. Lineage quite yet, because I haven't made anything of myself yet, but I have been to somewhat, to some extent, one of those queer Syrian Jews who instead of choosing the path of 
you know, capitalist endeavor, I chose to let my queerness channel into my like art making practice or critical inquiry practices. The only legible figures that I knew growing up of queer men from the Syrian Jewish community were these two. The others are like almost made such a pariah that you don't even hear about them. So there's no sort of queer folk. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Just be like, oh, I identify or I know that person. Even when they're sort of narrated, it's sort of like, oh, people don't even like affiliate Isaac Mizrahi with the community anymore. Or David Ajmi is known somewhat as like a rebel rouser. So oh, interesting. Yeah. Do you want to talk about like what parts of Lot 6, so the book, um, David Ajmi's book, Lot 6, like what parts just like resonated with you? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely reading it as a 23 year old being like, where was David at 23? Because I am lost. <laughs> so that's where my most energy was focused. It was like, where am I like lagging in his sort of journey? Because he's did so well, like doing that whole, I think as a creative artist, you're always going to be torturously comparing yourself to other people, particularly if they come from literally like he Midwood, the streets that I grow up in are like known to be the Ajmi area. Like Ajmi gotcha. actually, the Ajmi family and who I spoke to David later and found out these are like his cousins and not his direct family. They own maybe like eight houses on my street that I grew up on. Damn, wow. So it's like, it's my, he's, you know, he's writing about my block. I always, whenever I tell people to read his play Stunning, which is one of my favorite plays ever, it's like, I think that may, that could have been set in my house, you know, wow. like the plot of land that he's writing about. So that was really interesting to like really see so much of my, of my reference as he, as he names them, spoken about it. It was fun. Like I was even reading, like there was a moment when he spoke about this card game that he, that his friends would go to after school. And I think it was one of the names that he didn't change. And I know precisely this man who he was talking about, who held his card games who's actually my dad's cousin. Oh my God. And his son would also never invite me to the card games or whatever <laughs> the games were. And I was like, damn, these are parallel live. So that was funny. And I think what became the most sort of interesting to me, and I think, I don't know, I got to look at it and sort of like laugh at myself and self critique and like sort of like not know what to do with it because he describes this big journey in Sarah Lawrence where he's like trying to become, you know, this really intellectual theoretician, like studying Heidegger and like, you know, improving his vocabulary. And there is, that is a feeling that I'm still struggling with today. Like to what extent did this myopic world that both of us grew up in, something that felt so subatomic, despite it being like a subway ride away from Sweeney Todd or a subway ride away from Manhattan, there's something so sort of devalidating about the subsphere that you exist in that, you, that I feel like so much of my time has been spent, you know, I always describe my experience at NYU. I went NYU calling myself like a Foucault fuckboy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just obsessed with like speaking theory as if I knew what I was talking about because otherwise I felt kind of like there is no way to bring the myopia that feels true to myself into the public. So my only way to sort of be a public facing valid person, at least in the concourses of academia and intelligentsia and all this stuff was to sort of speak the, speak Talk the discourse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like zoom out from yourself in that way. Totally. And I mean, I'm still, and I'm still working on it. And I'm still sort of like, oh my God, what is my orientation here? Because am I obsessed with theory or am I obsessed with, you know, the way black studies says, no, this theory doesn't make sense for us. So we have to like use our new terminology. And I'm like, mm -hmm. maybe that's where 
my dramatic grammars come from. Maybe that's where like some of my new essay writing is coming from. There are these authoritative truth claims about how the world works that are codified by a lot of these sort of Western thinkers who yeah. we've also associate as, as Arab queer people with the, the writers of the Orientalist, Ouvois. <laughs> and how do we rescue ourselves from, from that entrapment? Because you can't do it primarily, you can't do it only by saying like these things don't exist and we have worlds outside of it because our worlds are inevitably gonna be shaped by the restrictions imposed by, you know, the, hege the hegemonic uh, ideas and viewpoints. So I'm still stuck in that bit of tension. That section of his book was interesting because it really brought out that tension and he's very generous in terms of how he will lay himself bare. So it was very helpful. For yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so like honest on so many levels. Right. Yeah. yeah. Going back to what you were saying about uh, being at NYU and get, being a fupo fuckboy, getting deep in the theory, <laughs> I, I guess I'm more familiar with uh, what you do as an artist than as a researcher, but do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what your academic focus is and kind of where your research interests have been? Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the research interests, I mean, I guess they're still shaping themselves out. The journey at NYU is pretty weird because I had come from, you know, yeshiva, for, I never left yeshiva, both Mizrahi and Ajmi did leave yeshiva. I went from, you know, pre-K to, pre to 12, there was a, in high school, like I applied and got into the PPAS, like Professional Performing Arts High School. And my like principal sat me down and said, like, if you leave like the yeshiva system, you'll be disgracing your family who like brought their traditions hundreds of years ago from, their country to this yeah. school and it's like this school no is the pipeline of your religiosity and your ancestry and I'm like oh, wow I'm sold okay <laughs> I can't describe that's it. Not, <laughs> yeah. how do you say no to that when you're putting on the spot with all that of was that really tough. thrown at you god and um, I've always been a big I've always been I needed to like be approved like I, I was and loved my approval ratings from teachers professors which is I guess again tying back to my journey through academia, um, started out not really knowing what I was trying to do. I went to Gallatin, which was like the individualized inter interdisciplinary study school. So you really got to do whatever you wanted. Right before going to Gallatin, I saw this unbelievable play called A Human Being Died That Night. It was, it was presented at BAM. They always do these sort of like international productions imported from all over the world, 20 minutes from my house in Brooklyn. So that was like the greatest gift as a teenager, not having any friends, but having like yeah. a student card to buy a $10 ticket at BAM. And it was a play from the Fugard Theater in South Africa. And it was about how the UN would send a psychoanalyst to, to interview one of the prime sort of architects of apartheid or one of the prime sort of officers upholding apartheid. And it was basically sort of like a perpetrator's guilt play. And it was a transcript-based play based on this interviewer's interviews with Prime Evil, he was called, um, and how he learns to realize throughout his psychoanalytical workings with this UN psychoanalyst that, quote, a human being died that night. He, like, has some moment of retribution. Obviously, thereafter, in school, when I 
actually started writing about this play. I wrote about it in like my first year seminar, but that was sort of like, I was like, what did I just see? And how do I do something that has to do with this? Be a part of this somehow. That was so amazing to me because it was, you know, it was touching on everything that seemed important in the world, <laughs> like racial justice and psychoanalysis and theater. Like that was just, whoa, like what everything in one vehicle. And it was documentary and it was like, wow, all of these things that I kind of was interested in all in one, you know, stage. Uh, so that was very exciting. And then I said, let me shape my, you know, first semester classwork around doing something that maybe will orient me to like doing this sort of work. So I took a class on like trauma theory. I took a class on like playwriting. And before this, I hadn't written any plays of my own. Well, those are the two, and like political theater or something like that. And, I, and as I progressed through school and came into my queerness because I wasn't, you know, illegible anymore really because everybody at NYU is queer. And if you're not queer, you're kind of like in the closet. For being straight. <laughs> It's like an inversion of the closet trauma. I feel like there was a journey of like roping through like wrestling with Zionism and all these different things. And what is my ancestral history and re dealing with like my interpolation as a white person from even despite my sort of Syrian background and all of the things that I never understood myself to be ethnicized in different ways. So that was really interesting. And eventually my like final projects became really focused on media and the ways in which violence is mediated through either architecture or visuality within Israel-Palestine. So it took a weird transformative journey except I, I, can, I can still totally see the links from um how you describe that play that you came in seeing it's so like even yeah. like the, the recent play i saw who the fuck is ahmed like yeah. perpetrator's mm. guilt and psychoanalysis and yes oh, damn, I, yeah like all, all of those things like <laughs> That makes total sense. Oh, good point. Actually, yeah. Well, that brings I'm us to... <laughs> do you want to actually, since you brought it up, do you want to talk about who the fuck is Ahmed? Like, tell the listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, totally. Well, who the fuck is Ahmed was actually the companion project to my final, more academic research project at NYU. And it was actually how I tried to sort of put into action and put into motion some of the theoretical questions that I felt like I was like interfacing on pages and not really able to answer for myself. Well, the play itself, I'll start with that, with a brief synopsis, is about an American Jewish Zionist couple that moves to the state of Israel, moves to Haifa, and Haifa is a really rich and interesting place to think about, just the way in which it's slated to be the sort of like city in Israel-Palestine where like Arabs and Jews live together in harmony, but there's went many deeper and darker histories beneath that picture of harmonious, you know, conviviality, as one might say. Um, right. So this family moves there, pregnant, ready to have a child, you know, raise a baby in the homeland. And the wife, it's a straight couple, sorry. <laughs> the <Shocking>. wife, <laughs> wow, you went for the taboo there. Yeah. <laughs> the wife um, begins, she's, she's an Arab Jew and her husband's an Ashkenazi Jew. And she begins seeing this ghost figure and is being somewhat haunted by this ghost figure who she believes to be a Palestinian man. She doesn't really know anything more than that. But because her sort of love life is rather uneventful, she's really questioning her attachments to the land and seeing how sort of 
nafishly her husband is loving the state of Israel, she sort of uses this hallucinatory fear that she's seeing this ghost as a sort of ploy to like make her husband jealous. So she says that she's having a love affair with this creature named, who she names Ahmed in the play. And it sort of becomes this weird sort of like sex parody play. And they invite in a couple's therapist. And then the couple's therapist is actually a major orchestrator in this play that they don't know is actually sort of orchestrating an investigation into this woman, Bina, who they see as a perfect sort of specimen to investigate what is popularly being regarded as like the anti-Zionist American psyche. <laughs> so it becomes a sort of really um, exploit exploitative. There's the underbelly of the play is this really exploitative architecture. But what's actually happening is, you know, this Arab Jewish woman is dealing with what she thinks is perpetrator's guilt or what is told to her is to be per perpetrator's guilt. But then it's continuously, the audience gets to follow through different um, options of what this might be so yeah y'all it's so it's good wild. it's so good <laughs> and um you can hear an excerpt of it on one of our last episodes from a while god it's been so long it's uh, been God, right before the pandemic. Believe, I can't I believe how long it's been yeah was it during the yeah during yeah. the last salon mm -hmm. oh god shit no okay <laughs> really bad brief synopsis i apologize no, that, was a, that was a good brief synopsis i thought so too don't give it all away <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm curious like what what reactions have you got into that play and whatever settings you've shown it in before i haven't shown it in too many settings honestly i got to show it i got to show a portion of it at nyu right when i was graduating and you know i only really invited friends who i guess were supporters of my work so that was pretty nice I got to show it at Salon, yeah. parts of it, and the Salon, we, um, I don't mean to throw anybody under the bus, but like we had, it was uh, featuring voices from, Jewish voices from the Arab world thing. So we want, so I wanted to have Athena acted by, you know, like a Jewish actor. Yeah. She was a Jewish, an Arab Jewish character. And not a single Jewish actor agreed to read the role, either because it was too implicating or... Okay. So that was, that was interesting. I mean, the, the play does go into like lewd territory and it's pretty, the character is pretty boisterous. Yeah. I understand. Mm -hmm. um, but that was interesting because it was mm -hmm. like, oh, are you disapproving? Um, or is it too sort of calling yourself out <laughs> that you're not willing to, you know, be called out quite yet? Yeah. yeah. I mean, over the year, I didn't get, I submitted it to a lot of places the past year and I didn't get a lot of positive feedback, but a lot of the feedback that I got was technical and not, nothing really addressing the, the political stakes of the play. So I wasn't huh. sure whether or not I was being gaslit by certain institutions. Yeah. Or certain I, I don't want to make assumptions, but sometimes I wonder, like, I mean, there are definitely instances where I've had, like, technical feedback being used as, like, a, a stick uh, because they don't like what I'm saying. But um, they don't, yeah. they're not ready to admit. It's, it's always hard, but, I, I, but then, you know, you don't want to be presumptuous. It's, it's hard to yeah. know what's what's really going on in those situations yeah. yeah yeah well i mean in the case of my play it's easier to say like bina is so hard that it's hard to invest in her her heart is so cold that it's hard to invest in her but i'm like is her heart so cold because she's oh. speaking about palestinian liberation <laughs> like interesting i didn't hear her that much i hated her husband so much more yeah like, it, like if we were to pick characters that are like hard to sympathize with yeah i, I actually found her i mean definitely she's an annoying person but she's also I thought she was one of the more like 
empathizable I thought so too. And I thought the husband was very, like... He was a dick. He was, like, an emotionally... (laughs) He was a total dick and just, like, emotionally unavailable. And, like, she was... So so even, like, taking out Like, taking out the politics, just, like, Mm personality-wise. Relationship-wise. Like, he wasn't, like, giving her fulfillment. So she... Her mind just went elsewhere. And, like, that's... To, that to me was like super understandable yeah um, anyway <laughs> fascinating <laughs> yeah it's, that's really interesting to hear ah, yeah. yeah we did a reading at the lark and i guess some of the actors had you know briefly read the script before having come in and they were all like wow we did not expect this to be written by a guy <laughs> i don't know if that means anything but i uh-huh. guess it just showed how much i put out like more care into how Bina was emoting. Yeah, um, actually, I hear that all the feedback was sort of like. See why? She's do you feel hard, like she's cold? Or I don't know. Apart from the like personality things, do you think um, like a lot of Bina's reflection on like uh, racial or ethnic identity were coming from like your own thoughts, and you related to her in that sense? Oh yeah, I totally aired out all of my scary, dirty laundry through her everything through her own self-orientalizations and all these ways in which she fetishizes Palestine and all these things like is this going to make her a sexier more righteous Jewish woman because she doesn't want to be identified even like with anybody who's wrapped up in this white supremacist architecture that she is associating with perhaps Jews writ large and saying like I'm better than the rest of you those are certainly things that I felt and still feel and still grapple with despite their obvious sort of self-racializing underpinnings or self you know sort of hating underpinnings but at least to write them creatively and like deal with them as opposed to like swallowing them or explaining them away was what I was trying to do because we're in a world where everything is you're a self-hating Jew or that's anti-semitic of you even though you know so um i was acknowledging that there's a there's an appeal or there's a there's a desire to distinguish yourself from those discourses without really putting them into question Mm -hmm. yeah that definitely came across um you started talking about like that initial play you saw bam and perpetrator guilt and i feel like um just the psychology of uh, trauma perpetration is a little bit underexplored in art. Mm-hmm. Like when people talk about trauma porn, everyone expects you to like perform the trauma you've experienced, mm, and yeah. people aren't necessarily asked to perform or comment upon like trauma they've produced. And that's something I've kind of thought like whose whose burden is it to perform that trauma? So I think yeah, I, th- I thought your play did that in a really like interesting and realistic way like walking through like the psychology of realizing that maybe I'm not the good person here and what do I do about it yeah I appreciate that yeah because she is she is also very much against acknowledging what she what what someone would call her traumas like she's in psychoanalysis and Mm -hmm. she's like I have no traumas like the only traumas that I see are the things that you know are around me that my people are perpetrating so but by the end you it becomes clear that she has her own yeah and I think that's that's what's what makes it compelling, the fact that it's not a binary of either you're a victim or you're a perpetrator. Like mm-hmm. most people, whether personally or sociopolitically, are both of those things and are yeah, working on tackle of those things. Okay, so more recently, what have you been working on? I very recently put out an interesting piece in this really great Jewish cultural journal, which I'm gonna plug 
called Protocols. And it was a piece, I had seen this Israeli-French co-production about an ex-Israeli soldier who moves to France and begins trying to live his life as a Frenchman. Interesting standard premise for a play, uh, for a film, but what really bothered me about it, or got me really interested in it first and then bothered me about it was like they they presented this man and it was actually an autobiographical film about like the filmmaker made it about himself as this really titillating and polyamorous and sexy like orientalist body who's like you know exotic and washed up in France but he's an Ashkenazi Jew who like was expelled from Europe just you know 60 70 years ago or whatever yeah you know so how did the Israeli state the question that I was really pursuing was like, how did the Israeli state somehow racialize this man? And how is now his Israeliness signified as, and I was using Fanon's terms because Fanon writes about, you know, becoming from the colony into mainland France. So it was like, how did the state almost like blacken the Israeli Jew? And that's what the, that's what the essay sort of pursued and sort of what does it mean and what does it imply when Jews become, I guess, orientalized in a very different and an instrumental way as opposed to their sort of former orientalized semitic you know um manifestations which have manifested for throughout history something very different is going on so that was one essay that and it also sunk its teeth into like what is how does that inflect the terms of jewish race uh, you know like anti-racist solidarity and the present mo- mo- movement for black life uh it is the fact that an israeli filmmaker who's being really this film like one best film at uh berlin last year 2019 it's like is this Israeli filmmaker sort of redeeming himself of his perpetrator's guilt yet again by presenting himself as more racially aware because he's now a racialized body under the eyes of French people? Or is he like Sadia Hartman, who's like a major black feminist theorist says like using somewhat of a black face because he's, you know, presenting himself under the white gaze and throughout his film as a way to, as a vehicle for his own white self-exploration is what sort of Sadia Hartman says blackface was in long times. She writes about an incredible paradox that's like the whole, the basis of of performing, of performing race, I guess, is sort of like how in pre-antebellum theaters, what white abolitionists used to have to do in order to say, look at how criminal and uncivil slavery is, was to perform in blackface, to use their whiteness to embody slavery because the only legible form of feeling of sentience was through, was when it it could be identified with whiteness somehow. So there's no such thing as understanding the interiority of blackness without inserting within it the white psychic consciousness. So that's what I'm saying was perhaps happening in this film, like, what does it mean for Jews to be sitting this and watching like, oh, I can be now validated in my raciality or something. So that was the sort of questions that I was trying to ask with this essay. And then there was another one that I wrote that was a little more just sort of like a formula for responding to George Floyd without without reinforcing sort of structures of white supremacy. Because I was talking about like this idea within, I guess, Jewish organizations, particularly in the US called like Ashkenormativity, which refers to like the ascendance of Ashkenazi peoples, representations, cultural histories, taking precedent over Arab Jewish, Sephardi, anything non-European mm-hmm. Jewry. 
and a lot of organizations post-George Floyd was like, now it's time to like address Ashka normativity and address like the, the, the dominance of Jewish white people in Jewish spaces. And I said, to talk about Ashka normativity now is to continue restricting your anti-racism work and like confining them to your communities without addressing racial dynamics that exist outside, you know, your Jewish community center, which is not really what's at stake right now. I feel like in some ways, I mean, these internal dialogues are so important, but you're right, it gets like restricting and detracts from what needs attention. I think it's when it becomes a replacement for engaging with the core of the BLM movement is... Mm -hmm. um, and I think in, in yeah. a lot of ways, uh, like that movement gaining attention made a lot of different communities start talking about racism in a lot of different contexts, whether it's like addressing internal community racism, um, which we have talked about too, yeah, or just like addressing anti-blackness, but in ways that aren't directly related to like the core goals of the BLM movement. Like mm-hmm. for instance, a lot of people started addressing like anti-blackness in art and aesthetics. And I think that's all good and valid but when people i also saw some letting just kind of totally diluting the idea of what blm is to the point where it's just neglecting the fact that there were core tenants about like police violence and the prison system um that were at the core of that movement yeah yeah and I mean, BLM is a global liberation movement. Right. It's not, you know, we're going to do something a little bit better. We're going to reform and be a little bit better. So I guess where my biggest yeah. sort of gripe was, and I was what I was directly responding to, were these pieces that were writing about Ashkenormativity in the state of Israel, as if the state of Israel had to better liberate their Mizrahi or Arab Jewish populations without anybody putting the existence of this state of Israel into question as a white supremacist architecture that, too. Yeah. you know, has training to the NYPD or right, yeah. Yeah. and all these different things. So it's like, how do we remap in the way that BLM activists and black philosophers and black studies scholars are saying like, anti-blackness is the underlying governing structure of our world. And we have to sit with that to some extent no matter what our oppressions might be, you know? Yeah, um, I think a, a term I've heard for probably the first time last year was Mizrahi washing, like similar mm. to pink washing of using mm. the concept of diversity in Israel to overlook state violence. Yes, completely. That ties very much to why I, why I set my play in Haifa for, in, in the first place, because I really wanted to write a play about the history of Haifa, and then it just didn't happen. But there's an amazing book called like A Confiscated Memory. And it's basically about 48 and 58 in Haifa because Haifa is known to be the birthplace of the Mizrahi movement. And it's memorialized by the state of Israel as sort of the place where Israel had its first ever sort of successful civil rights protest. So it's sort of like, oh, look how great Israel has addressed a civil rights issue so early in its young and you know, it's young history, but the very conditions that the Mizrahi Jews were sort of like complaining like about living in squalor, like living in these small tenements, they were all confiscated homes from Palestinians who were forcefully evacuated 10 years earlier. So what the scholar makes a really interesting argument to say is like this history has been sort of glorified to cover up and hide a sort of even darker 
history of oppression. And, you know, that's just what we're continually seeing there and there and elsewhere. So I guess kind of outside the like rehistoricizing of it, um, actually, I, I don't know that much about this. Has there been any kind of solidarity between Mizrahi rights organizing and Palestinian rights or? Yeah, there was a big movement during this time of sort of like black internationalism where, you know, Angela Davis was leading the Black Panther Party and the Mizrahi black had their own Black Panther Party and everybody was sort of this beautiful solidarity with Palestine as part of the broader agenda of Black internationalism and the Black Panther Party's global vision. And it included the liberation of Mizrahis as just as much as it included like the liberation of Palestinians or I don't necessarily know if they were looking for a quote unquote liberation or a sovereignty. I don't, I have to look at the, <laughs> how, yeah. how that was articulated at the time. But yeah, there was this moment and a lot of people cling to that moment and a lot of people cling to that history. I personally am not, you know, a Mizrahi Jew, so I'm trying to find, hopefully one day we'll, you know, do a better job at finding similar instances, historic mm -hmm. instances of some sort of global solidarity. Yeah, current instances. <laughs> yeah, or current. Yeah. We, don't, we don't always have to find things yeah. in the past to do them in the present. That's very much true. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the present, do you have anything planned or coming up or uh, projects you'd like to be working on in the future? I know that's kind of a loaded question right now. <laughs> <laughs> God, haven't I done enough? No, I'm kidding. No, not at all. <laughs> and now I can just lay it all down at 23 years old. Yeah, no, I, I honestly, one of my main goals coming to Los Angeles was like getting some more, like moving somewhere without a real goal in mind. Cool. And just sort of like skiing, almost like shock therapy. Like, where do I go when I have yeah. like none of my needs being met? in a total new place <laughs> where what am i going to gravitate to yeah or i guess i should ask instead of what are you working on like what are you up to what what's been what are you gravitating towards lately uh, i'm doing a lot of reading cool. i'm reading i'm reading deleuze and guattari and some french philosophy and i'm also reading a lot of like black studies which i've been doing a lot of over the cool. past few years i am hiking and biking and pretending that i know what it's like to live on the west coast which is fun for my growing up in like this dark gray sludge of Brooklyn at this time yeah. of year, year of my life. So I'm larping as a West Coaster. My favorite hiking ever has been in LA. Oh yeah, where yeah, at? Gorgeous. Did I go to I don't, no, I don't even know. I don't I can't even identify the spots because it's just been when I visit, but I just like I love I love the hiking there. Yeah. Like, you, no, it's crazy. It's incredible. Yeah. The sky is like pink in the afternoon and <laughs> yeah, you think LA, you just think this metropolitan, I don't know. I mean, like, it's a huge metropolitan area, but it has so much natural beauty that New York just doesn't have the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's industrial man-made beauty in New York. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, well, where can where can people follow you? How can they like connect with you if they want to? Totally. I know you. I know you're not like you're taking a step back from social media, but like whenever you do check your social media. Yeah, no, I'm I'm on social media. Yeah. I am, but I try to be on it a little bit less. But that just means like deleting the app and just logging on through Safari all day long on my phone. So it's not, <laughs> it's not really like I'm actually off social media. My most frequented social media platforms uh -huh. are Instagram and Facebook. Thank God I'm not on Twitter because I hear you just like feel miserable all day, every day. <laughs> if you're on my 
Instagram, I think is just at my name, at Michael Zalta, C-A-L-T-A. <laughs> and I think my Facebook is just Michael Zalta. Used to have my middle name, but now it doesn't. <laughs> Awesome. Um, What's your middle name? Yeah, what is your middle name? My middle name is... <laughs> I have one Ashkenazi grandfather. <laughs> yeah. And his name was Reynold Greenspan. So his cool. name, Reynold, is my middle name. Yeah. That's a good ring to it, Michael Reynold. Okay, and then, like, if you're comfortable with having your picture attached to this episode, that would be cool. Um, everyone listening, let us know if you think... Michael and Adam Elseich look alike. I don't think they do. I think they do. I think they have a lot of similarities in their writing <laughs> styles, but not their faces. I think their faces have a lot I of similarities. I think they smile the same. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Yeah. Really yeah. I don't know. I've see, I see it. Which someone I don't like, someone like, mixed. Admit, I look like someone, you know. Didn't someone mix that. you like? did someone mix you up at an event? Oh no! At every event. <laughs> yeah, but every like the lark, someone's like, oh, like. Oh. <laughs> See, I don't get it because you have different hair at this point, so I think that would usually that's that's kind of a kicker. No, but Adam was telling me before he had even met you or knew who you were. He went to some event and people were like talking to him about growing up in the Syrian Jewish community. <laughs> in Brooklyn. Oh, he, said that, he said that David Adjami met him at Sundance and was like talking to him. Wait, what? Oh, wait, really? Oh no, this what? was something else. I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that yeah. either. That's amazing. Nadia is like, literally yeah. the only person who doesn't think you look alike. No, actually, someone else said that too. Nibal said that. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, you you're know, not alone. You know us yeah. more intimately. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll we'll put a poll on our store and you can like vote on yeah. your faces or yeah. good picture. Oh, we have a picture together that's actually pretty good, but yeah. we don't look a little oh, yeah. because we're together, you know. Yeah, I yeah. think it's more effective to see. We can like put you, you individuals. and then put like a couple of other things and then put <laughs> Yeah. Like like one of those like, like a palate cleanser. Things. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was such an honor to have you. You know, we've gotten to talk to you for like a couple minutes at a time on previous episodes, yeah. but we kept being like, he needs his, he own, needs his episode. own episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm honored. I so appreciate Thank you. it. Well, everyone check out Michael's social media, but more importantly, his work. And you can follow us on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs. And our website is the same thing, thequeerarabs.com. And you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. We're very creative like that. (laughs) Thanks all for listening. Thank you.